Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to say to all of you watching and listening online, good morning. Good morning to our North site, too. And as you just saw in this video and as you've seen on social media, we want to welcome you to the beginning of our Easter series called Smoke and Mirrors. And I just want to say this right up front as we get going. All of you are welcome You who have been long-term believers, Christians for years or decades, some of you who are just brand new Christians, you've just crossed the line of faith. Some of you joining us here today are curious, you're seeking, you really truly want to understand, and others of you are outright skeptics, hands folded, you're all welcome. The goal of this series, this week, next week, Good Friday, and then of course on Easter Sunday, is actually to be a beginning It's to start a conversation, not to answer every single question, but at the core of this series is for all of us, Christian and non-Christian, all together to have a real intellectually rigorous conversation about this question. But it's not just a lecture or intellectualism alone, it's also about encounter. Let me begin by clarifying this right up front, no matter where you come from or who you are. See, faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Faith is informed trust. It's about facts and it's about encounter. Facts take you to the door, but many people never think about this as they live through life. Faith in its essence, though, is relational. That's why informed trust is what faith is by definition, because trust is a relational word. Trust implies encountering the person the facts are about. I was joking a few weeks ago in our community here talking about faith and even a few years earlier how much I love Swiss LA fries. Anyone want to say amen to that? Yeah, it's a good thing. Unless it's takeout and then they suck. So you never do that, right? But I love Swiss LA fries even more than McDonald's fries. I know it's hard to believe. I'm sorry. Oh, it's all good. You'll be okay. But you know, I say it's so interesting when you think about faith. See, it's one thing to know that Swiss LA fries exist. It's another thing to go and interview multiple people that have actually encountered and eaten Swiss Chalet fries. It's another thing to go to a Swiss Chalet and stand outside of the window and watch. Well, actually, the police would be called. Don't do that. But you know what I mean. It's another thing to walk in and even smell it. But it's a totally different thing to sit down, order the fries, dip it in the sauce, as you should, because that is from God himself, and eat the fries, See, when we want to encounter anything, when we want to know, capital K, know, capital R, reality, there are two avenues to actually access facts. The one is intellectualism and the other is encounter. It's relational, it's experiential, and it's historical. And when you bring those two things together, then you encounter truth. Now, at the core of our conversation for this next season is the person of Jesus and asking the question, did he exist, did he die, and even more boldly, did he physically rise from the dead, or is all of this a lie, and is all of this smoke and mirrors? Now, we need to have a quick conversation about Jesus even before we get to the issue of his resurrection, It was C.S. Lewis, that great famed intellectual from Cambridge and Oxford, himself a militant atheist, brilliant in his thinking, who became later a Christian, who said that you cannot come with a neutrality towards Jesus. Speaking in that great 1940s worldview, he said, when you observe Jesus, Jesus is either a megalomaniac, pathologically mistaken, or valid, since Jesus himself claims not merely to say true things, although he did such things, he is claiming to be ultimate truth itself. See, if you just listen to what Jesus claimed about himself, Jesus claims extraordinary things like he knew God, he was equal to God because he was God. He declared crazy things like he could forgive sins. He said that he existed before he was born. He claimed to be the only way back to God and making all other religions null and void. He promises eternal life and supposedly he physically rose from the dead. Now, unlike all other great philosophers and governmental leaders and religious leaders found all throughout human history, he paired these outrageous claims with something we never saw in anyone else. He paired it with humility and love and care, and he broke down barriers that had never been overcome in human history before him in the full sense. 
So you cannot remain neutral on Jesus, his claims, or his teaching. But if Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, then maybe he just was a good man or just a prophet or a political revolutionary who got killed because he was in the wrong place in the wrong time standing up to the man. Or maybe he was a liar, or maybe he was mentally ill, or maybe he's worse, maybe he's the devil himself, or maybe he's crazy. But if Jesus did physically rise from the dead, it changes everything. See, let's deal, let's grapple with the intensity, the epicenter of this claim. If Jesus physically rose from the dead, atheism is answered permanently. Because suddenly the universe is not closed, we're not alone, and we're not just made from dust because something has happened beyond what we know. If Jesus physically rose from the dead, agnosticism becomes resolved. If Jesus rose from the dead, every single religion and philosophy on earth must reevaluate, reevaluate itself at its core tenets. If Jesus physically rose from the dead, then death is answered and we know what lies fully beyond the grave because someone went there and came back and has told us what's going to take place. If. If Jesus actually physically rose from the dead, then the human family might now not need to ask who God is, what is he like, and if he's even involved. If Jesus physically rose from the dead, then maybe you can meet God. If Jesus rose from the dead, there might be purpose in our lives beyond money or sexual experience or power or being moral or being religious, trying to prove ourselves to God. And if Jesus rose from the dead physically, then the coffin, which we don't like thinking about, or the cremation fire, which we don't like thinking about even more, might not be the end. But that's a lot of big ifs. Our conversation begins somewhere between 53 and 56 AD, 20-something years after the so-called Jesus event. There's a man named Paul who's meeting with a group or writing a letter to a group of Christians in Corinth, and he pens these words, the great summary of the Christian faith. Just listen to what he says. He says in 1 Corinthians 15:3, for what I have received... I'm passing on to you as of chief or first importance. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of our brothers and sisters who at the same time, most who are still living, though some have now died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and at last he appeared to me also. Do you see this this morning, whether you're a skeptic, a seeker, curious, or a longtime Christian? The Christian faith as a movement, as a worldview, as a religion, its foundation of the house it is rooted deeply in the testimony of people saying, I was there, it's not myth, it's not fairy tale, it is actually what I saw, it is factually where I was at, and I experienced it. Now, as we dive in, everyone gets their thinking caps on because we're going to go through a lot of information over the next three weeks. Most scholars believe that Paul had the interviews he's referring to in this passage when he visited Jerusalem three years after his own encounter with Jesus. That means that the conversation he had with all these witnesses to write this letter to another group of Christians happens within four to eight years of the Jesus event. He went and he personally met all these people who are claiming they saw Jesus physically written, risen from the dead and he interviewed them within four to eight years of the so-called event of Jesus' resurrection. Now, if you're a university student and you've ever studied history in university, you understand why what I just said is massive and shocking and rarely found in historical studies because the proximity to the event and the testimony is so close. The other thing we need to remember, and it's very important as we get going in this, is Paul's works are letters. They were meant to be publicly read in multiple places, including in Jerusalem. And these copies were sent across Christian communities within 20 years of the Jesus event. So it easily should have been dismissed by all those that knew it was a lie or wrong or fairy tale or invented because the letters are being publicly read in public places in the place where the events were taking place. Now, here's what go keeps going. Now, watch this. Paul raises the stakes as he keeps writing this, and he says, if Jesus has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. It's all smoke and mirrors. 
More than that, we've been found to be false witnesses for, about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Jesus from the dead, but if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those who have already died in Christ, they're lost, the grave is it, the coffin is it, the cremation fire is all we've got. For only and if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people should be most pitied. We are the biggest losers on earth to believe in this stuff. Now, I want to bring this home to all of us, again, no matter where you are in your intellectual, spiritual journey. This is an all-or-nothing deal. It's all-in or all... There's no Humpty Dumpty sitting on the wall with this one. You've got to fall somewhere. This is a total sum game. See, I want to bring this home for all of us. Christianity is unashamedly rooted in historic fact, not myth. And we as Christians for 2,000 years have never been afraid of history and we never run from history. Why? Because we actually believe that Jesus' physical resurrection is a historical event. Maybe you've been following over the last few years the famed evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. He's written a book that's become world famous called The God Delusion. Halfway through that book, he said something quite striking and powerful outside of his area of expertise. No one knows, he says, who the four evangelists were, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but they were almost certainly had never met Jesus personally. Much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history. The Gospels are ancient fiction. It was late one night, I was on YouTube and I was watching a very interesting conversation. No, that's too Canadian. A great debate between Richard Dawkins and a man named John Lennox. John Lennox is a famous mathematician and philosopher at Oxford, and he's a Christian, and he's got just as many credentials as the great, famous, of course, Richard Dawkins, the famed evolutionary biologist at Oxford. And they were debating each other sitting in the grand hall of the Natural Museum of History. Back and forth they went intellectual giants debating everything that we wonder about. Is there a God? Can we know if there's a God? How was our beginning started? Is there an author of our beginning? Where, what about morality? What about ethics? And back and forth, these two giants went in a very English kind yet direct way. And suddenly it happened. I was cleaning dishes, cleaning up toys as I do. I'm a father of three. And as the debate was going on, here's my prayer phrase of the moment. John Lennox looked at Richard Dawkins and said, my dear Richard, and that's dangerous in English terms, my dear Richard, the problem with you is you are too monolithic. I immediately stopped what I was doing and listened because the implication of what he was saying is, Richard, you're a great evolutionary biologist, but that's all you are. You are not multidisciplinary and that is your greatest weakness. You have a closed universe because you are not studied enough. So I was like, oh no, you didn't, right? So okay. And then he continued and he said this, see, the problem with you, Richard, is this, you have no appreciation, understanding, or authority for historical science. You are an evolutionary biologist, but what do you do with history? And what do you do with the historicity of the claims of Jesus' resurrection? And he said, the top historian at Cambridge has just declared that all the evidence points to an empty tomb. He himself is not a full follower of Jesus. What do you say to this, Richard? Richard, of course, had nothing to say because he had never thought that anything beyond science has authority. See, this is what we need to begin to grapple with as we get into this series. See, many of us think that the only way to access authoritative knowledge is through science. And science, by the way, we are pro-science in this church. Science is a wonderful, we would say, gift from God. But history is not like chemistry where you get in a lab and you do something time and time and time and time again and it becomes verifiable. History is something that has passed that you cannot go back in a time machine and access. So the question we need to wrestle with today, since the Christian faith is deeply rooted in the science of history, not the science of chemistry, is this. How do we access history to know if an event actually took place? Mm, okay, I will. Now here's four things to work out. One historian, Gary Harabas, said these things. Here are the four rules of history we need to all understand, Christian or not. Number one, you are always looking for multiple independent sources. 
Number two, you are always looking for enemies to support historical claims about what you're researching. See, it's one thing if your mama says she likes you. It's another thing, though, if your enemies say, I don't like you, but I'm ex- by my acknowledging you, you exist. When enemies support your claims, you listen very carefully because they have nothing to gain from you. The third thing historians always look for are eyewitness accounts because they are always stronger than secondhand accounts because there's less time to exaggerate, build legend, have other facts creep into the full story. And the fourth thing is you always look for embarrassing admissions or details about a person's life that they would never insert because they're trying to build a lie and you look for cultural nuances to support historical claims. You look to see that what is being said in that moment is deeply personal, possibly embarrassing, and culturally relevant. So in 200 years, if someone was talking about my life and they were talking about me being on Facebook, they may not know what Facebook is, but that is deeply culturally relevant to what I'm going through now. And so with these four things together, we are all going to wrestle down the question, Christian and not, open together, does history match up with the story of Jesus or does it not? Did Jesus even exist? Did he even die on a cross, let alone the claim that he rose from the dead? Let me start with a different question maybe as we get going into the facts. So many of us sitting here today, no matter where your your background is from, we presume and think about history all the time. And we presume most of it took place. So if I ask you if Plato or Julius Caesar existed, all of us go, well, of course, Plato, the great philosopher, and Julius Caesar, the great leader, exist. And I'd ask you, well, how do you know that they existed and they're not fictional characters? Now, when you start diving into the facts, yes, there's lots of second-hand accounts from history, but when you look at what they themselves produced, it becomes quite scary. Plato was living from 427 to 347 B.C., Now, the earliest manuscript we have today in museums and personal collections of his writings that he penned, we only have copies of his written in 900 AD. That's 1,200 years after Plato's death, and we only have two copies of Plato's writings, both produced 1,200 years after he existed. So my question is, well, how do you know he was there? The earliest thing we've got from him is 1,200 years after he lived. Did he live? Or is it just a big conspiracy? Julius Caesar, we have movies about him. We think about him all the time. He lived from 100 to 44 BC. The earliest copies we have of his famed work, The Gaelic Wars, were written 1,000 years after he died. A thousand years after he died, all we have is secondary sources. We have no primary sources. And by the way, we only have 10 copies of his original works penned a thousand years by others. So here's what one author says, because this gets to the heart of the question that's on the internet everywhere. And some of you have thought about, he says, look, if you question the Bible based on when it was written, And then you hear that thing because it's been translated so many times. Side note, it hasn't been. We have the Greek manuscripts today. And you still question whether Jesus existed. Then you must also begin to think that Julius Caesar and Plato were completely fictional characters and never really existed based on those premises. So many people say, well, you can't use the Bible in the conversation at all about the historicity of Jesus. To which this author replies, well, why not? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John found in the scriptures are bibliographies, their accounts of Jesus' life, and the normal objective measure of reliability when it comes to historical documents are two things. The number of available copies of ancient manuscripts that we have, and this is critical, and the time span between the original version and the copies that are still in existence today. Now, this may shock some of you, but the earliest fragments that we have of the New Testament referring to Jesus and his life and death and resurrection are the John Riley fragment, the Chester Betty fragment, and the Bomber fragment that were written in 50 to 100 AD, and we have them in museums today, meaning that the time span between the originals and the copies are somewhere between 29 and 130 years from the Jesus event. Why that is significant is because all sorts of other things we think about, we don't have them for a thousand years. This is within a lifetime. These are being written down, and then we have copies of the copies within the next 20 to 30 years. 
All the original gospels you have in your Bible, if you have a Bible this morning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all written between 35 and 60 years of the Jesus event. Mark, which is the earliest gospel, was written at least at the latest at 70 AD. That's less than 40 years after the death of Jesus. So all I'm pleading for in the middle of this conversation is some rationality not to throw out all of these documents because you think they're biased. They are closer to the event than most historical documents are on anything in any conversation. Now let's get to the needed questions this morning. Well, did Jesus live? Fine. Uh, Maybe the Bible has some truth in it. But did he live and did he die on a cross? And is there any evidence at all that Jesus was buried? Well, yes, like I just said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about it in death. But the real question, the skeptic among us and the genuine seeker among us, and actually the scared Christian who doesn't want to really look their faith in the mirror to make sure it's real, the real question we're asking at three o'clock in the morning is, is there anyone else outside of the Bible that talked about Jesus said he was alive or he died on a cross? Is there any reputable leader or historian that says, yes, what I read about in the scriptures actually took place? And I'll up it it even better. Is there any non-Christians who acknowledge the same facts? And my answer today is, oh yes, many. Let's start with a guy named Josephus. Josephus lived from 37 to 100 AD. He was living and writing at the exact same time that Paul was and Peter was and John was. He was a Roman Jewish historian. His expertise was the first century, first century AD that is, of Roman Jewish relations. His work on the revolution against the Romans that led to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is a critical work. It's called the Jewish War. He also wrote in 94 AD, around the same time the book of Revelation was written, a book called The Antiquity of the Jews. Now, Josephus was a Jew. He was a trained Roman historian. He did not believe in Jesus. He did not believe Jesus was the Son of God or the Messiah, and he was not a follower of Christianity. But in his book, The Antiquity of the Jews, book 18, chapter 3, paragraph 3, if you want to Google it, it's there. This is what he said. Now, there was about this time a man named Jesus who was wise, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to himself both Jews and non-Jews, ready? And then he records what people said. And he was the Messiah, now watch, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principled men among us, the religious leaders among the Jews, had him condemned to a what? cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as divine prophets had foretold these things, 10,000 under wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct at this time. You have a Jewish Roman historian, who's the main author of relations between Jews and Romans, talking and writing at the same time that the Gospels are being written and other letters are being written. He is not a follower, and he says, a man named Jesus died at the hands of Pontius Pilate from a cross. People declare that he was risen from the dead, and Christians are still around at this time. See, if anyone's doubting the historical proof that Jesus existed, you're going to continue to see it. There's a guy named Cornelius Tactius. It's a Roman historian, not a Jew. He lived from 55 to 120 AD, and he was in conversation and writing down about what was happening during the time of Nero. Our church just went through 1 Peter. It's that time frame he's writing about. And he talked about how Nero hated Christians, and he wrote this. Now, Nero fastened the guilt, inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christ, that's a Latin term up there, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that's the cross, by the way, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our proconsuls, Pontius Pilate. You have a Roman historian who's saying that Pontius Pilate existed, Jesus existed, he died by a cross in the same time period that the Gospels say all of this take place. Third, there's a guy named Lucian, He's a well-known Greek satirist and traveling lecturer. He's sort of like Chris Rock back then. 
brilliant. No, really, he's brilliant. He's intellectual. He's a satyr. It's like SNL on really angry steroids, right? Like that's what it is. And now 80 books bear his name and he hated Christians and he mocked Christians all the time. But in his mocking, listen to why he's mocking them with your historicity glasses on. He says these two things. He was second only to that one who they still worship today, that man in Israel, that man in Palestine, who was crucified because he brought this new form of initiation into this world. Stupid Christians, in other words. Later he says, having convinced themselves that they are immortal and will live forever, the poor wretches, these Christians, despise death and most willingly give themselves to it. More, however, the first lawgiver of theirs persuaded them that they're suddenly all brothers the moment they sin against and deny the Greek gods and they begin, notice this, worshiping that crucified philosopher, sophist, and living by his laws. See, this man, mock Christians, thought they were total idiots for giving up in the Greek gods, couldn't believe people were dying for this faith. He's writing during the same time period as these other two, and he says they're following this man who comes from Israel, who was crucified. How stupid can you be? But through his mockery, he's actually pointing to the historical event of Jesus' existence and his death. Then you've got another guy named Mara Bar uh, Cyprian. He's a Stoic philosopher who lived during the same time period. He's from the province of Syria, which was the next door province. And he was writing, and we have a letter dated from 73 AD. So just after the book of Mark is written, this Roman philosopher who is not a Christian, has nothing to do with the Christian movement, is reflecting on great leaders that he's upset have been murdered. And if you read the letter, he says, I'm really upset because they murdered Socrates and they burned, they burned another leader, Pythagoras. And you're like, Pythagoras was a guy? Yes, yes, actually, that's where that all started. And then he says, and I'm bemoaning the fact that the Jews murdered their wise king. What advantage, he writes, did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that their kingdom was abolished. Now talk to scholars about this. This is a direct reference to Jesus' murder and the burning of the temple. So you have this building case where Romans and Jews and Greeks, historians, comedians, satirists, right, are all pointing back and saying, we're all acknowledging this guy was around, this guy lived, and this guy died by the extreme penalty, which in Roman terms is crucifixion. Now, it's really interesting when you get into Jewish writing, religious writing. There's something called the Talmud. This is the ancient record of all Jewish history of laws, of rabbinical teaching compiled throughout the centuries. And this community makes multiple references to Jesus as a threat, in their opinion, to Judaism. Here's just two of the quotes. It says, Jesus the Nazarene, look at that. They even quote where he is from, was, ha- was hanged, that's a Jewish way of saying crucified, and, herald, and a herald went forth before him 40 days heralding. Later it says, but since they did not find anything in his defense, talking about his trials, they hanged him on the Sabbath eve, that is the eve of the Passover. So now you have even the religious leaders within a hundred years of the Jesus event who were part of the community that condemned him saying, this man, and if you read the Talmud, they say that Jesus was a sorcerer deceiving the Jewish people and he was crucified. Now all the original witnesses also believe that Jesus died and rose again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and many others claim this. Now let me just read one historian. Keep with me. He says, if you read the Bible critically from a historical lens, there are nine early independent sources that actually build the biblical account we read in our Bibles today. You have Paul and his interviews with the original disciples. You have the oral tradition passed down in the early church, all within 20 years. And then you have the written works of the early church. Now, some of you here or online or up north are saying, well, John, fine. That's really interesting. Maybe he existed and maybe he even died on a cross. But let's be, let's be honest, John. Like, we have iPhones and we have Google. And let's just be brutal about it. Ancient people are a little stupid and they'd believe anything. But you know, we know better because we're more educated and we've traveled the world. And since I can Google it, I mean, everything online is right, right? Thanks, Wikipedia. Anyway, Ancient people don't know any difference between fact or fiction or myth or history. And I say to you, not true. Put down your chronological snobbery just for a moment and think. 
Major historical work has now been done in universities in the area of anthropology, anthropology and genre of literature. And it has been clearly shown time and time again that ancient people are not as stupid as we thought, even though we have iPhones, and they knew the difference between fiction, myth, and historical accounts. I love this great book by Timothy Keller, where he wrote this little book called The Reason for God, and he was working out this issue, and he ends up quoting another author. Let me just read this to you. Please listen carefully. In his landmark book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Richard Buckingham marshals much historical evidence to demonstrate that at the time the Gospels were written, there were still numerous well-knowing living eyewitnesses to Jesus' teaching and his life events. They had committed them to memory, and they remained active in the public life of churches throughout their lifetime, serving as ongoing sources and guarantors of truth of those accounts. Now, Buckingham uses evidence within the Gospels themselves to show that the Gospel writers started naming eyewitnesses in the text to assure the readers that actually they were not being lied to. For example, and if you've grown up in church, you've read all this, but this is the stuff you read over and shouldn't. Mark says, for example, in Mark 15, 21, that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, there's no reason at all to put names in like that unless the readers <clears throat> knew them or could have access to them. Mark is basically saying, and you see this in Luke and John and Matthew, he's saying, look, Alexander and Rufus vouch for the truth of what I'm telling you, and, and since they're still living, if you want to go ask them, just go ask them what I'm saying. Paul himself, as we started this message this morning, appeals to readers to check with living eyewitnesses if they want to establish the truth of what he's saying about the events of Jesus' life. See, Paul refers to 500 people who claim to be eyewitnesses to the risen, physically risen Jesus. And here's what we miss as modern people in 2016. You can't write that in a document designed for public reading unless there were surviving witnesses whose testimony agreed and confirmed what the author was saying. All of this decisively refutes the idea that you see on the internet all the time that the Gospels were anonymous, collective, evolving traditions put together hundreds of years later. No, no. They were oral histories taken down from the mouth of living eyewitnesses who preserved the words and deeds of Jesus in great detail. And by the way, think about this. It's not just Jesus' supporters who are alive while all this is happening. You have all the bystanders and officials and enemies and opponents who also heard Jesus teach and saw his actions and watched him die by crucifixion. And they would be especially ready to challenge any account publicly that were fabricated because Jesus' impact was so huge. Now here's the quote. For a highly altered fictionalized account of an event, in other words, a lie, to take hold in the public imagination, it is necessary that the eyewitnesses and their children, by the way, and their grandchildren all be long dead. They must be off the scene so they cannot contradict or debunk the embellishments and the falsehoods being built in the story. See, the Gospels were written far too soon for any of this to occur. Now, there's more. Not only do we have massive historical evidence of Jesus' existence and his life and his crucifixion from both Christian and non-Christian stories, not only do we have this wild timeline where everything is compressed within 50 to 80 years of the Jesus event, which again in history is shocking, not only do these actually start naming eyewitnesses in the accounts, so you can say, you go ask that person and that person and that person. Deeper than that, what do we do with those people who hated Jesus. Like we, this is where historians go and they cannot work this out. What do we do with people that hated Jesus and suddenly were changed by Jesus and start following Jesus? Let's call them latecomers to the party. Let's talk about a guy named James and a guy named Paul. Now, for you who've done church for a while, you know these names. You who are brand new Christians, you might have heard of them. Some of you who are skeptics or seekers may have never heard about them. Now, James is an interesting guy to read about in this conversation. If you open a New Testament, you'll find a letter called James. He authored it. That's obvious. He's a major church leader. But that's the end of his story, not the beginning. James was the half-brother of Jesus of Nazareth. 
Some of you are like, hold on, I grew up Roman Catholic. Mary had kids? Yes, they got that one wrong. Lots of them. No, no, lots of them. Mary and Joseph had kids. It's in the Bible, by the way. I still don't know why the Pope hasn't got this, but we'll work that out with Francis. Okay. (laughs) Mary and Joseph have kids. Now, James, who's one of them, he's the half-brother of Jesus, becomes the leader of the early Christian church in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts 15. But he was not a follower of Jesus at all. He actually hated his half-brother. Now, if you read the Gospel of John, Jesus' best friend wrote that. In John chapter 7, I think it's verse 5, he said none of Jesus' brothers believed in him at all. Now, in Mark, the earliest gospel that we have, just listened to how Jesus' family thought and interacted with Jesus. Because what's significant is they tried shutting him down and shutting him up. Mark 3.21, when his family, Jesus' family, heard about these things, they went to take charge of Jesus because they said he is out of his mind. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He is, like, he is dangerous and needs to be shut down. Mark 6, 1. Remember, the earliest gospel, all these names are in here, so you could even have these interviews during this. Jesus left there and went back to his hometown accompanied by his followers, and he began to teach in the local synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed, and he said, where did this man get these things? Watch. What wisdom has been given to him that he's doing miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the guy who was our carpenter for the last 30 years? And isn't this Mary's son and the brother of oh, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters still hanging out with us here? And they took offense at Jesus, and Jesus said back to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, in his own house, as a prophet without honor. It's like Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? Not so good in this family. So James and much of his family did not believe the claims of Jesus. They were not seekers about Jesus. They were deeply, deeply angry at his, their brother. They thought he was crazy, a liar. Maybe he was demon-possessed, mentally ill. And they were extremely concerned because what he was saying was so inflammatory that the Jewish officials and the Roman officials were extremely angry. And the family knew that when a family member goes off the rails, if you support him, you're taken down too. There is zero advantage for the family to follow Jesus. None. Now watch this. After Jesus' life, which I think even non-Christians would say was pretty, you know, eventful since we divide history based on him, B.C., A.D., just saying. After his profound life, and maybe miracles, whether you believe that or not, and his teaching, and then his death, Then supposedly he physically rises from the dead. Only then does James, his half-brother, say, my brother was the Messiah, the Son of God, God in flesh. Now, how did it happen? James says it took a post-resurrection experience to convince him. Only when he met his dead brother, who had been publicly crucified by the Romans and met him fully alive, did he suddenly say he believed? Remember what Paul said at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Then Jesus appeared to James. Do you notice? It stands out. He had a personal one-on-one latte with his brother. Now watch this. We know from Christian and non-Christian sources that James ended up being murdered for preaching about Jesus, his physical death, and his resurrection. He moves from an enemy to a cynic to a skeptic to a debtor to a believer to the leader at the center of the ancient Christian community within 20 years of the Jesus event. And I've got to ask the question, let's be rational, why? Because his brother bought into a really profound lie? Or it was such a good story that he thought, wow, I suddenly believe, but I used to think he was mentally ill? No, no, many of you say this, well, Christianity is so strong and so beneficial, there'd be a huge benefit. No, within the first 25 years of Christianity, there was zero benefit for being a Christian. You got killed for being a Christian. What does James say? What does James, the deep cynic and relative of Jesus say? The only reason why I believed was not an intellectual argument. It's because he walked in and sat with me and I touched him and my, my life was changed forever. Historians have to deal with the story of James because it's historicity, it's historic, it's bound. 
What about Saul? We call him Saul, Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. Saul was religiously like a person who got the Pulitzer Prize for writing or for Oscar for acting, the Victoria Cross for military bravery, like the Heinzman Trophy for football, the gold medal at the Olympics, the Nobel Peace Prize. Like this guy is the real deal. He's Jewish, but not just Jewish. He's educated as a Roman, and he's a Roman citizen. He grew up in Tarsus, a major cosmopolitan center. It'd be like he grew up in Toronto. He spoke and wrote wrote in multiple languages. He would have the equivalent of at least one, probably two PhDs. He studied under Gamaliel. By the way, you can Google Gamaliel. He was one of the greatest teachers in Judaism during the time of Jesus and beyond. He's still considered in Judaism today one of the great philosophical and intellectual leaders of their movement, and Saul was his understudy. And by the way, Saul hated Christians. The story becomes very clear as recorded in the book of Acts. Acts, by the way, written by a guy named Luke, who was a medical doctor, who also interviewed all the eyewitnesses before he believed. He writes this where it says, a man named Stephen went to the same organization, the Sanhedrin, that had condemned Jesus to death, and he declared that Jesus was physically alive, that they had been culpable in his murder, and Jesus was the king of the Jews. And as a Jew, Stephen said to the religious leaders, you've made a mistake, and you need to repent. And at that moment, they became so incensed that it says in Acts 7, they dragged Stephen out of the city, and they stoned him to death. And while they were murdering this young man, it says they laid all of their jackets at the foot of a young man named Saul. In Acts 8, 1, it says, And Saul approved of killing the killing. And on that day, great day, a great persecution broke out against the church. And Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, dragging both men and women and putting them in prison. Again, there's no advantage within the first 20 years of being a, a Christian. All of this is happening within three years of Jesus' death and supposed resurrection. In Acts 9, it says that Saul, so emboldened, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So if he found anyone there of the way, Christian movement, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now you read that and you go, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's not a yeah, yeah. Why does this matter? Because this also backs up claims of history. In 6 AD, the Roman government went to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high leadership, and said, we need you to police your own people across the whole Roman Empire. And so we are giving you religious authority and legal authority over every Jew. And in 6 AD, they were given extradition abilities. Saul knew this. He went to the high priest, by the way, the same high priest that had Jesus taken out. And he said, let's deal with these people because they're screwing up with our faith. And so Saul got permission under Roman and Jewish law. And it says in verse 3, as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, well, who are you, God? And Saul, uh, and Saul asked, and he, the, the response is, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go to the city and you'll be told what you must now do. Now Saul becomes Paul, the great thinker of Christianity. And why the change? Catch this. Because of a great intellectual debate on the historicity of Jesus, no, he knew the guy existed. Was it the facts? He didn't believe any of this. He thought this was a cocked up story to deceive people. He, he, is there any advantage for Saul becoming a Christian? No, actually, he's putting them in jail. Was he gullible, mentally ill, unstable? Absolutely not. He's one of the best thinkers in Judaism in that moment. Here's what he would say to you. I encountered a physically raised person who was dead. And the guy who sent me to take people out was there when he died, and all the witnesses I know said he was dead too. And then I met him, and I so met him profoundly, I've become a follower of him in an instant. One scholar said the appearance narratives in the Gospels provide multiple independent attestations of the appearances. For example, the appearance to Peter is attested by Luke and Paul. The appearance to the 12 is attested by Luke, John, and Paul. The appearance to the women, which we'll be talking about, by the way, uh, on Easter, is attested by Matthew and John. 
The appearance narrative spans such a breadth of independent sources that it cannot be reasonably denied that the earliest disciples did have such experiences. Thus, even the very famed skeptical German New Testament critic, a guy who spent his whole life studying the New Testament critically, not as a believer, Gerd Ludman concluded, it must be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. This deals with the idea that it's all biased testimony. See, here's what we're going to learn today, next week, and the week after. Not one of the original followers of Jesus believed Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Not one of them expected it. Not one of them believed in it. And they were all biased in the other direction. And as we're going to keep seeing over the next two weeks, in the resurrection accounts, they're full of embarrassing admissions. And don't forget, all the original followers of Jesus either hated him, or wrote him off, or were fearful, or they ran away, or they abandoned him. Some of them even cussed Jesus out. And suddenly they claim to see him, and then eat with him, and then physically touch him, and then they think they're forgiven, and then they turn into bold preachers about Jesus' death and resurrection. And the vast majority of them, read your history, are jailed, tortured, exiled, and murdered. It is extremely clear from a historical place that these people genuinely believe that Jesus lived, he rose from the dead, and they encountered him because they kept telling everyone else, even at the cost of their own life and their own faith. Three last names you've maybe never heard about. Probably someone that you won't probably call your kids this. Clement, Polycarp, and Ignatius of Antioch. Unless you're from a Greek background, that's all good. Then do that, all right? Now, this is very significant because, again, we're only talking about history today. And we're talking about the proximity between the event and first-hand sources and second-hand sources and the unity of the story. Clement was a church leader in Rome. He lived from 30 AD to 98 AD. He's living at the same time as Josephus, all the other people I quoted, and the authors of the scriptures. He's murdered in 98 AD for being a Christian in Rome. He knew all the original disciples. We have his writings. He interviewed them too. And at the core of his life, he spoke about their testimony and the unification of the story that Jesus physically was alive, physically died, and physically rose from the dead, and he gave his life for it. There's a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. He was the bishop, the leader in Antioch. He was appointed by Peter himself. He ends up actually being murdered in 100 AD for preaching about the physical resurrection of Jesus. And he interviewed Peter, John, and Paul within 100 years, not even, 60. Then there's a guy named Polycarp. I love that name. I don't know why, but Polycarp. He personally was very close and mentored by John, Jesus' best friend on earth. He ended up being murdered at the age of 86 years old for being a Christian, And in his letters that we still have today, he writes multiple times about Jesus dying and being physically raised from the dead and his conversation with the original apostles. See, it was Paul Mayer, the former professor of ancient history, that just says this. The total evidence is so overpowering and so absolute that only the shallowest of intellects would dare deny Jesus' existence. As John Lennox said, my dear Richard... My dear Richard. Notice, there's more historical proof here than any other historical event or people that many of you just believe because you believe it. All the criteria are here. Multiple independent sources. Multiple eyewitness accounts. Enemies attesting to what took place. Embarrassing details. Radical life change that makes no sense outside of genuine encounter. And the time span between the original event, the original versions of writings, and the copies are well within 150 years. Most of them under 100 years. Actually validating the story in historical ways in a way that is shocking if you do your research. But I need to end in an unexpected place. And here's where I end. It's the late New Testament critic, Norman Piran, who, by the way, did not believe Jesus rose from the dead, who said these words. The more we study the tradition with regard to the physical appearances, the appearances, the firmer the rock begins to appear upon which they are based. And you're like, well, why do you end with that? Here's why. Because this man, who's a scholar his whole life and did not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus, 
In one breath says, as a historian and a theologian and a critical scholar, the more I study this, the more it is obvious he rose from the dead. And in the same breath, he says, but it didn't happen. Now, here's why this matters. Because it's one thing to smell the fries, and it's another thing to eat the fries. See, at the core of our movement is this. The facts take you to the door, but you still, informed, have to have trust. That is why years later, Paul himself, once an enemy of Jesus, an intellectual giant who was convinced because he physically encountered the physical risen Christ, said, what is the door to move from skepticism to seeker to believer in the resurrection of Jesus? And he wrote this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So if you agree with Jesus about what he claimed about himself, and you believe in your heart that God physically raised him from the dead, oh, that's when you become saved. So here's all I want to say, because this is part one. Next week, we're going to deal with all the great other conversations. Well, maybe the body was stolen. Maybe the disciples invented a lie. Maybe dogs ate Jesus' body. Maybe it was 1965. They were all taking LSD, and there was an amazing illusion altogether. We're going to talk about all that fun stuff. On Easter morning, we're going to talk about how never to build a lie in Jewish Roman culture. It's going to be real fun. But here's what I want to say. For you who are long-term believers, you who are brand new believers, have hope. The person you've met, it's the real deal. Not only is it, in, it's not just emotionally or intuitively, history itself points to the validity of Jesus' life, his death, and I would dare say his physical resurrection from the dead. Atheism and agnosticism is answered. That's the truth. And for you who are seekers, all I want to say to you is this, and skeptics, walk with us for three weeks. And I would ask you to do something probably a little uncomfortable. Two things. Number one, get a hold of a Bible, online, probably easier, and read the Gospels over the next three weeks. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read them. Listen to them. Don't just say you don't believe it without reading the stuff. And then I'm going to challenge you even more. And I would like you to take a moment to sit by yourself and out loud, not in your head, and it will freak you out because you probably don't usually do this, say, Jesus, if you're alive, like if this is not BS, if this is real, then you come show yourself to me. Because I'm like Paul or I'm like James or I'm, I'm not in. But if you're real, and this is all actually not smoke and mirrors, though it's violating everything I believe, I'll be open to the conversation. So why don't we stand together, stand in the north, and let me just pray, and then we'll respond. Lord, thank you for the evidence, but thank you for the faith that you've given us, and thank you that Jesus is alive. Thank you, Lord, that this is true. I pray you'd continue to work out the questions that we have as Christians and as seekers and as skeptics, but we just want to say thank you that we're not alone, that the coffin is not the end, that the cremation fire doesn't have the last say, but Jesus has risen from the dead. And so we're just very excited. Lord, keep working this out for us, we pray. And all of God's people said, so let's together, if you can, in good conscience, let's sing to Jesus. Yes, let's sing to Jesus and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.